Welcome to the Restaurant Boiler Room, Season 3, Episode 1. I'm your host, Rick Ormsby, Managing Director at Unbridled Capital. Today in the Boiler Room, we're going to be giving some post-election thoughts on franchise M&A and what we think is going to happen in 2021. The Restaurant Boiler Room is a one-stop shop for multi-million dollar merger and acquisition activity and financial complexities affecting the franchise restaurant industry. We talk money, deals, valuations, and risk. Delivered to the front door of franchisees, private equity firms, family offices, large investors, and franchisors on a monthly basis. Please feel free to find our content at Unbridled Capital's website at www.unbridledcapital.com. Now, let's enter the boiler room. So the question I've been trying to get the answer to is, what do franchisees, lenders, and investors think about the franchise space in 2021? We have a, we'll talk a little bit about my views on kind of what the political fallout and, and change will mean to the industry, uh, potentially in the short term and longer term. But, you know, I started asking questions of first uh, lenders, then private equity folks and family offices, and then also franchisees to kind of get their views. The first is lenders. You know, I, th- I think a lot of people, if you read the national news, are going to say that the restaurant business obviously has been struggling, right? Same store sales as a whole have been down significantly, I think, uh, you know, almost double digits for the year for 2020. And so within the pockets of the fr- of the restaurant industry, we have some really poor performing dine-in establishments in, in some of the blue states where we have stricter COVID controls in place. But sub-segment of the marketplace has really gone differently in many cases. And particularly for the QSR brands, you see just this incredible resiliency. One person put it to me that they said that they felt like our industry, QSR industry, is nuclear proof because it's made it through the Great Recession and now it's made it through COVID with increasing sales of profits. I thought that was kind of a funny characterization. But lenders were the first people I reached out to in the last couple of weeks. I've had several dialogues and discussions. It's amazing. Lenders, especially for the QSR side of the business, are you know surprisingly bullish, more so than I thought they would be for 2021. I expected, as you've heard these podcasts over the last few months, and oh, by the way, check out some of the ones in the middle of the year last year in season two. You're, you might get a hoot out of them because I make a ton of predictions. I I mean, I don't know how I got so crazy to make all these predictions back in June and July, but I listened to to one of the old podcasts and tracked some of the predictions I made at that time. And like 90% of them were spot on. So uh, so, so maybe that gives you some confidence as you listen to this that that, that uh, we know what we, we're talking about. But I was talking with, you know, some, you know, some lenders and then looking back. We were expecting mid last year to late last year that we were going to see kind of render uh, lenders ratchet down the lease adjusted leverage, that it was going to be more difficult to get good terms on loans, even in a low interest rate environment. But what I'm hearing at the start of 2021 is in limited instances, of course, but what I've heard is that quite the opposite is true. Several lenders are telling me that they're aggressive and they want to be their 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 companies and their and their franchise arms are really trying to deploy more capital this this winter and this spring into the franchise space. And so I, I think they're migrating a little bit. You know, it's a consistent theme that for a wait and see right now in casual dining and fast casual. Some folks that I've heard are, are on the lending side are are telling me they think that the independents will come back and they'll come back uh, in a pretty meaningful way, meeting independent restaurants that aren't franchise uh, later this year when the COVID vaccine is spread out across the country. So that, I thought that was interesting too. But largely speaking, the message is the QSR lending market should be strong and in many cases might be as strong or stronger than it was on a pre-COVID basis. 
So keep your eye out for that. My next group was investors and specifically a private equity and family office groups that don't have restaurant or franchise assets right now. I'm getting a lot of calls from these types of folks, and it's the same kind of story. I think maybe a lot of them are a little bit late to the party because this thinking in terms of investing in the franchise space was something that really started in a robust fashion back in 2014, 15, and 16. You had a second wave of guys and gals and and firms that got into the business in 2017 and 18 and and even 19. So I think that that trend is probably going to continue even for those who come into the party and are a little bit late to the party because I, I think they are seeing this business as you know, a question mark would be, how do I get any sort of meaningful investment in the U.S. consumer if I'm not going to buy like Amazon or, you know, one of these online companies, right? I mean, you have limited opportunities. You have food, you have a couple of other areas, but if you want to play the U.S. kind of, uh, you know, retail consumer stocks or investments, you know, franchise restaurants is probably one of the more stable areas if you take tech out of it, where the, you know, the, the revenues and profits have been strong. So we keep hearing this from people who have maybe a bigger mindset of investing in a basket of 30 or 40 different industries and types of investments. And it's interesting that I think that the commentary is that we want to be more meaningfully involved in looking at the space for 2021 because of the way it has performed throughout the COVID crisis. So I I think, um, you know, you'll see the family office and private equity guys and investors talk really big. They typically want really big deals. As you may know, as you're listening to this, most of the people in this industry who are franchisees or small franchisors, there are lots. But, you know, once you start getting at like above you know, let's call it $20 million, $30 million in EBITDA, you start narrowing in this industry to a sizable amount of firms and companies and franchisees or of, of, of that grouping. But largely, the industry is still fragmented and is, and is really centered around the 20 to 30 to 40 unit operator. And the reason why that has become that way over the years, just as to go on on a tangent a little bit, is because the smaller franchisee especially you know can't handle all of all of the complexities of managing an increasingly difficult business right just think if you're a two or three unit franchisee or a five unit franchisee trying to deal with all the government regulations and all the covid restrictions and closed dining rooms and all of the all of the new mandates for food safety and everything that's come in place and try to run your business and feed your family and make the bills paid and all these other things. It's very difficult to do if you're a small franchisee. Uh, So smaller franchisees have been selling to medium-sized franchisees. And the sweet spot, I think, continues to be these mid-sized franchisees who are professional enough to have the resources around them to to really operate well, and uh, but they're not too large that they don't know the hometowns that they operate in, right? You know how I feel about that. But I think I think you you will see a lot of private equity and family office groups try to continue to get into brands in 2021. The issue is going to be again that the, a lot of the deal sizes will be too small for them. So uh, will we see a migration, a continued mi- migration of these professional investors down into the smaller side of franchising? Will they jump potentially into distressed deals on uh, you know that are largely bad credits with lenders who want to maybe, you know, dump an investment in 200 casual dining restaurants that didn't perform anymore. Maybe you'll see the, 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 
private investors go into small franchisor brands more aggressively. It's also possible that we can see them moving from tier one franchise brands into tier two and tier three franchise brands. That was starting a little bit in 2019 and 20, i.e. someone saying, instead of going to buy, you know, make an offer on a really expensive 50 unit Taco Bell business, I'm going to go look at being the biggest franchisee in a brand that only has 500 units across the country where I can buy in at a little more reasonable rate and I have smaller, more conservative way to grow, but I can do it with a little bit less competition. I think we're going to see, though, that the optimism from the franchise community is going to, you know, from the investor community, pardon me, is going to, uh, you know, be there and may be increasing in 2021, depending on what continues to happen as we play the year out. So those two, those two comments were positive. On the franchisee side, it's interesting. I see a couple of different phenomenons happening. Um, you know, right after the election results, right, we saw a lot of people in in uh, call us and franchisees, a lot of first generation franchisees who operate and own the entirety of their own businesses, calling and saying, Rick, you know, unbridled. I, I think, uh, you, you know, I'm, I'm scared about what, what the future of minimum wage and the future of taxation could be for me relative to my net proceeds of selling a company now or in the next six months, as opposed to holding it and selling it in five years. And so I think a lot of people, especially in some of the low wage states, to just focus for a moment. An area that has a lot of low minimum wage is going to be the southeastern United States, right? So a lot of franchisees in those areas are very concerned, especially with the Georgia runoff election going, both seats going Democrat, that now we're going to see some pretty sweeping minimum wage increase mandates. And a lot of those franchisees in those territories are at 9 and $10 an hour average wage, right? So they they stand to, to, to probably have a longer road to, uh, to keeping that profitability when those changes are enacted, whenever they may be. Taxes are another issue, obviously, too. And so you're starting to see the national rhetoric a little bit already about raising the corporate income tax. Obviously, the Biden plan talks about right, raising the top income tax rate, increasing the, you know, the, uh, the, the FICA and FUDA you know, tax a little bit, I believe it is, right? The Medicare tax a little bit for a higher percentage of the income of earners. So some of these things are, are obviously detriments to, to people who are going to look not just at the gross proceeds of selling their business, but clearly the net proceeds after paying all the taxes and distributions and, and everything there. So I think that's going to be something to watch. You know, some other franchisees, on the other hand, are really bullish and with good reason. They're, they're sitting on businesses that are up 25 or 30 percent in revenues, right? And profitability is up just as much or more. They've been a beneficiary in many cases of some of the change in the way we eat in a COVID world. And they are very bullish. Uh, some are saying, we're going to operate this thing for the next 10 years. Others might be saying, uh, you know, so I've heard a lot of that. I've heard a lot of other people say, well, you know, maybe now is the time to sell my company because the valuation is so much higher than it was just because of this record breaking year. Here I was operating a business that was basically a plus or minus 2% business in sales and profits basically year after year after year, right? That's why you buy into the franchise business is a coupon clipping type of business with with kind of low growth trajectories, but stable, we hope, cash flows and not much new development over time. It just becomes a nice stable business. But but all of a sudden, these franchisees are looking at their stable business over the last 20 years and they see this, they see this huge uptick in, in their performance. And I think those are the wise franchisees who are saying to themselves, while we may keep a lot of this new revenue that's moved over from casual diners and independents and people who don't want to eat in dining rooms right now, we probably won't keep all of it and we probably won't keep all of it forever. So I really will acknowledge the fact that we're probably at a, you know, nearing a plateau in the next couple of months, certainly 
for the 12 months that probably starts rolling over in, uh, you know, or ends in, in, in April or May, when at which point in 2020 sales started coming back up. There are some unrealistic franchisees too, and those are the ones... You know, it's like anybody in life, right? If you pick 100 people on a street, you're going to find 20 people who are unreasonable, right? They're just unreasonable. And those folks are like, gosh, my sales and profits are so big. And I think we're going to keep all of this for the future, right? And so those folks are seeing the stars of, of great performance and think that it'll stay. So I think I would characterize the franchise e mindset as being slightly mixed, you know, so, so, so slightly mixed depending on where they operate, the size of their businesses, their view on taxes and minimum wage increases, and their view on how strong their business is now and how much longer it will stay that strong. Clearly, a lot of people feel like the halo from this segment will continue not only through 2021, but 2022. Someone I really respect, who's a franchisee, a big franchisee, just told me recently that he thinks on a two-year stack from 2020 and then looking forward to 2022, he sees meaningful growth by year in 2022 and, and increasing same-store sales year over year for 2021 over 2020. They're pretty bullish, right? If you are looking at minimum wage increases, let's hope that any federal minimum wage increase, if implemented, will be graduated like it's been in places like Florida where state income, where state minimum wage has been enacted, but it's been done kind of in a planful way over, I think, between now and 2026. In that kind of increasing minimum wage environment that is planful, you should think that most strong franchise brands should be able to gradually over time build up their pricing to be able to offset a lot of the cost of increase minimum wage. Now, the outcome for all consumers is going to be that that taco doesn't cost $1.89 anymore. It costs $3. And the burger doesn't cost $2.99. It costs $3.99, right? So we all have to deal with increasing costs if we're going to have increasing wage for the employees. Because I can tell you while margins are good, the franchise business operating a 15% margin business is a blessing in this space. There's just not a lot of margin. You're counting pennies and, and hoping for big volumes. That's kind of the overarching kind of comment that I've heard in the last several weeks from talking with franchisees and friends and lenders and, and investors. I'll just go back to again and reiterate that the interesting point from the investment community is we may be willing to take lower returns and pay higher prices for these assets just because, again, we want some exposure to the U.S. retail consumer. And other than buying Amazon, there ain't a whole lot of options for me. Food is something that hasn't been Amazon, and it's shown itself through COVID to be pretty insulated from big, big negative changes. So I think we'll see that play out in 2021. Okay, so that's kind of my, you know, my general outlook is going to be, is going to be a positive one too. I think for 2021, my hope is that we're going to continue to see some really robust sales and profits throughout the first quarter. I'm hearing some anecdotal evidence and uh, since January 1st and several of the brands that we know really, really well, that sales and profits are up a lot. And once this second round of stimulus checks gets into the hands of the average U.S. consumer, I think you're going to see what we saw last summer, which is which is a, a pretty strong same store sales push. And, you know, dining rooms will still be closed in many cases at QSR. So I think you're going to see, you know, that translate to a pretty high dollar profit increase in each one of these uh, franchisees businesses. So I think you're going to see a great Q1. Now, Q2 is going to be interesting because it'll probably be really strong as well, right? I mean, again, like I said earlier, in April and May, you started to see some of the concepts coming back in 2020 after that initial like March and April shock to the business and to our 
system with COVID. So Q2 is probably going to look really good. The question is going to be what's going to happen in Q3 and Q4. Q3 and Q4, a lot of the QSR concepts that we that we represent and, and talk a lot about are going to be rolling over some pretty big numbers. And, and my guess is that they'll probably start trending negative. Maybe some of the stimulus and, and maybe some of the positivity of getting past, hopefully getting past the COVID crisis with all the vaccines maybe in place by the summertime, you know, maybe that kind of dampens the, the amount of the decline on a year-over-year basis for Q3 and Q4, especially if our economy is doing well and stock market's doing well and we're, you know, we're out of a recession and, uh, you know, there's generally a favorable kind of geopolitical climate and, and those sort of things. So if all of that's in place, I could foresee a second quarter as being really, really positive for a lot of these casual diners. And darn it, they deserve it. So let's all be cheering for the casual diners and for the uh, elegant diners and for the fast casual and for the independents who've had to endure very little dining room activity and big same store sales decreases over the last year. Let's hope that they see this massive increase starting in the second quarter and really the third quarter, but but maybe at the end of the second quarter, and I think they will. And on the QSR side, my guess is that you just see some kind of you know negative trending month over month as you start heading towards the back half of the year, but potentially not as strong in the negative direction as, as maybe one would initially expect because the economy could be stronger. There could be a lot of government stimulus still in the hands of, of the average everyday consumer could be in kind of one of these. I mean, I don't know that this is the base case, but we could be in one of these roaring 20s-like recovery uh, this summer. I mean, clearly there are a lot of people, including me and probably everyone listening right now, who is looking forward to the opportunity to, uh, I don't know, go lay on a beach or go eat at a, at a steakhouse or go walking in your community and giving your friends a high five, you know, like things that we just don't do too much anymore. And so there may be a return to that. That's kind of how I feel about it. But, but you know, it's possible that the worst case scenario could play out, that we end up in kind of a little bit of a, of a poor financial situation, that the recovery doesn't happen as quickly, the COVID vaccine doesn't get rolled out as, and administered as well, we get into a stock market rut, you know, we have some stagnation with some new government policies in place, you know, and then you see the consumer pulling back a little bit. So I have no crystal ball. I guess I generally like to be temperate and look at things in the middle, but keep listening because as the next few months, uh, you know, kind of come forward, we'll have we'll have better commentary and thoughts on that. Now, you know, as it, as it pertains to political changes, after I said the Georgia, you know, the Georgia elections went Democrat, and now it looks like the obviously the Democrats control all three branches of the House, the the Senate, and the and the presidency. I do think we're going to see, you know, like I said earlier, some the minimum wage increases. I saw Janet Yellen talking just yesterday, talking about uh, how the U.S. can afford an increase in corporate tax rate. Right? Who knows where it'll be? You know, maybe it goes from you know twenty three point eight or twenty one plus two point eight, right? Twenty three point eight percent to maybe twenty. You know, 28%, maybe 31%, maybe 35%. You know, who knows exactly where that lands as taxes on capital gains increase. Uh, it does impact franchisees in the sale of their business. A lot of, you know, goodwill, you know, franchisees typically have their, their businesses and asset sales, and they are typically allocated between real estate, land, you know, which is land and building, goodwill, furniture, fixtures, and equipment. And in those different allocations, and when we do these deals with our with our friends, we and our clients, we we you know we we work with their CPAs to help them negotiate asset allocation for purposes of taxation. But you know clearly uh, because of the favorable depreciation laws that have been in the franchise space for a long time, 
they have uh, you know a lot of the lot of the recapture is at ordinary income tax rates on the uh, on furniture fixture and equipment allocation whatever that allocation might be depending on the purchase price and so ordinary income tax rates will be increasing as well we're we're fairly sure maybe maybe not aggressively but at least somewhat um, but I, I you know I, I think again I'm hopeful that the the changes aren't draconian on the political side. Uh, I'm hoping that they are that they are moderate. Uh, I'm hoping that moderate views will prevail after what's been such a on both sides a really polarizing time over the last several years and obviously several months. And I'm hoping that these moderate policies will enable our franchise industry both on both the franchisees and also for the customers who are eating in the establishments to be in a situation where there is uh, some normalcy, some moderate some moderate activity and some positivity for 2021. Now, as you look at uh, how do I think the franchise industry is going to do in terms of franchise M&A activity? So we're sitting here, you know, January is typically the first half of it, at least is typically pretty quiet, right? Because a lot of our clients and friends are gathering their year-end P&Ls and it's natural for people to get gather their year-end P&Ls from their, their accountants. And those usually take two or three weeks. And then they sit and they look at the year-end review and they have some of their planning meetings with their staff and with their loved ones as they think about what their plans are going to be for the next year. And so we're kind of in that, in the start of the year, we're kind of in that area where, where things are a little bit slow. And then typically it really ramps up starting in the February and March timeframe. And my sense is based on the activity that I see that probably activity feels, you know, M&A activity for 2021, if I had a crystal ball, would say that we're probably going to be slightly up in the franchise side than 2020. 2020 was a, was a slow year, right? It was, you know, and Bridal did really well. We had our second best year on record and we're within like seven or eight percent of our best year on record. And I think that's an anomaly. I mean, humbly speaking, it's because our company's growing and just really kicking butt, right? But I think if you were to interview or talk to MA advisors across the entirety of segments and even in the franchise segment away from us and apart from us, I think you'd say that they would say that the activity has dropped significantly, right? In 2020 from 2019. One of the reasons Unbridled didn't is because while we did maybe half as many transactions in 2020, believe it or not, they were at almost twice the size as they were before. So our overall volume stayed about the same while our number of transactions actually dropped. So we're project. I think the number of transactions that we'll do, and I know we're just a microcosm of the franchise industry, number one, from an MA perspective, and then we're definitely just a tiny little fly in the ointment for the overall mergers and acquisitions market across our country. But if I look at 2019, 2020, 2021, you know, even if Unbridled does, um, you know, half, you know, like half the increase in tra- transactions from 2020 from 2019, you know, like, so if we do a just just halfway in between the two in 2021 and we keep our deal size the same, it's going to be a meaningful, you know, 30% increase in our business. So that's kind of how I'm thinking about it. I think that there's going to be more transactions that will happen. I think the transactions will stay about the same size, although they might drop a little bit in size. I think you will see the mega deals and the big deals come back to the marketplace. But but my view is you're going to see quite a few of the smaller franchisees or the small middle franchisees sell in this year because they're the ones who are most susceptible to all of the risks and all the ups and downs of this business as it pertains to managing something that's become so complex. And I think there's more, uh, you know, when you work in this business every single day operating restaurants, and let's say you own 15 locations in Des Moines, Iowa, 
you're you're um, you 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 just by nature as an entrepreneur live with more emotions, more psychological fatigue than someone who might operate a 400 unit business and has an entire team, right? So I, th- I think that psychological and emotional aspect of the ups and downs of this COVID cycle will cause a lot of movement in the smaller to mid-sized franchisees. And we'll see what happens with the big franchisees. We'll see what happens. It may be a little bit slower th- than, than 2019, but certainly a g- bigger pace in 2020. Uh, so that's uh, that's what I'm thinking now. Now you know, as 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 we sit here in January, we're sitting on like seven or eight new possible assignments in our company, which is probably a 20 percent increase over 2020 before we before we started the COVID slowdown. So that's my general guess. We'll see what happens. But one thing I will I will note, and we'll talk a l- I'll talk a little bit more about this in a minute, and that's how franchisees are pricing deals. There seems to be a lot more difficulty in meeting kind of buyers and sellers, you know, meeting of their minds to agree not only on the pricing, but the terms of a transaction. I would say that, uh, you know, in years past, it would be uncommon for us to represent a deal and then have, let's just say, represent 10 deals and have maybe more than one that had trouble where a buyer walked away or a franchisor wanted some heavy obligations or there's a retrading on price and terms, but it seems in this early part of 2021, as I'm just kind of looking back at the last few months, that this is going that that the complexity and the renegotiation and kind of the a little bit of the uncertainty of the deals is going to increase. There's a couple of reasons why, but one primary one is that people are not accustomed to this huge swing in performance change in our industry. Right. So if you are buying a business that was it had four million dollars in EBITDA, you know, in 2019 and then for the full year in 2020, it has six million dollars in EBITDA when historically it's been hovering between three and a half and four and a half million dollars in EBITDA. Like how how is a buyer and as a seller, do you look at that six million dollar EBITDA business? Now, as a seller, you'd say, hot dog, I got a six million dollar EBITDA business. And it's going to be that. And I, if I'm going to sell it, I'm going to sell it at that price or on that, you know, priced on that amount of EBITDA. And a buyer is not sure, right? And so we are kind of learning our way through how that works. And some anecdotal evidence will, will tell you this, I think, that in any process we're running where you have this same scenario, where the EBITDA went from $4 million in 2019 to $6 million in 2020, for every seven or eight people who make an offer on a business like that, you know, three or four or five of them are looking at it as, okay, I'll give you credit for some of the increase Instead of $4 million, I'll look at this as if it was a $5 million EBITDA business, okay? But I won't I won't look at it as as if it's worth a $6 million EBITDA business because I think it's going to drop once COVID, you know, is, is over and, and restaurants get back to normal. So that's maybe three or four of the offers. Look at it that way. Couple the offers, look at it more conservatively than that. And a couple of the offers typically, depending on the brand, will give most credit for those uh, increases and may say, okay, I'll take your $6 million in EBITDA, but I may not pay you quite the multiple I was going to pay you before. I was willing to pay you a six and a half times multiple back in 2019 based on those numbers. And or let's call it freezing math, six six times multiple. So that's, I'd, I'd be willing to pay you 24 million. But now, you know, that you have 6 million, I'll be willing to pay you like a five or five and a quarter times multiple. So the net is that your EBITDA is up a ton in this case. Your multiple has dropped fairly significantly. But, you know, five times six million in EBITDA is 30 million and five and a quarter is what? 
31 and a half million, right? So you look at what it was, the value was in 2019, and it might have been 24 million, and now it's 31 and a half million, and that's a sizable increase. And so kind of the processes that we're seeing are kind of like dancing along those types of thinking. I think lenders are kind of, you know, falling in line with that kind of thinking too. You're going to see, so you're going to see like in, in our jobs, it's kind of interesting because the variability and the unpredictability of the offers, of the buyers, of the execution of the offers that buyers make, all of this stuff is really, really kind of unknown at this point in time. And because of that, I think we might be looking in Q2 or Q3 backwards at the first part of 2021, and we might see that there are quite a few deals that are inked or, or hand, you know, they're inked, but they don't close. Or if they close, they close after, you know, some prolonged renegotiations, uh, especially as we head into the end of Q2 and early Q3 if same-store sales drop, and that's a big concern, right? You, If you're a seller of a business and your same-store sales are dropping during your due diligence period, that's not a good thing with the lenders and it's not a good thing with the buyers. It's, it, it typically means a retrade is in order if your sales are dropping in a measurable way, like 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 seven percent or more, you know, uh, you should expect that. So, I think that's a possibility. So, what else? What else do I see so far? Uh, that just from talking with people in the industry uh, at the beginning of this year, I think uh, we're we're going to see some segments and brands continue to do well. I just see a you know just like a tremendous upside in in the chicken space. And so I, I just would, anyone who's listening here, the chicken space is really exploding. I, I uh, you know, we're getting, we're getting some exposure and some interest in some other brands that we're working in. I mean, you know, I'm a former KFC executive, right? If you've listened to this p- podcast for a while. So I have a, a natural affinity and inclination for young brands, KFC, Taco Bell and Pizza Hut. And that doesn't, you know, represent more than half of our work now. But I would just say that, you know, having been a KFC loyalist for many years, I've kind of turned a blind eye to, to kind of what, and I think what everyone in the KFC community has to what amount of growth has happened in chicken outside of KFC. Obviously, you've got Chick Fil A that really doesn't even act like a chicken; it acts more like a McDonald's, right? But but you have you know you have a lot of you know the the Zaxby's, the Raising Cane's, the Popeyes, you know all the, and then the Splinter, the smaller franchises. Uh, that are growing as well, even little, even resurgence of places like churches. Uh, so I think we're continue to see that segment be really, really hot in 2021. The interest is very high there. There's going to continue to be a professional investor flight to quality. There always is. They want the brands that are going to be really, really strong and resilient, and so uh, you know, and have a lot of uh, you know, have a lot of development potential. I think development becomes something that we talk about in 2021 a little bit more than 2020, right? In 2020, there was really no development, or it was halted in its tracks. Ninety-five percent of it was really because of because of COVID and the lack of financing. But as but as franchisors have started to adapt and they've started to skinny down their new prototypes with smaller dining rooms and smaller footprints, and I'm already talking with several franchisors who are really kind of getting pushy about trying to reignite the development pipeline for 2021. I think, again, you'll see the professional investors kind of float to the, the high-performing brands like the Taco Bells of the world, but also, you know, the Wendy's of the world and the Popeyes of the world. But I think you're going to see them float to the ones that have great development potential. 
Um, you know, and you just think of some of the brands that have really good unit economics for new unit development. And that is needed to get a lot of these guys into these systems, especially if these investors are looking downstream at tier two and tier three brands where they're going to be buying like a 20 or 30 unit portfolio that may otherwise be too small for them. Right. They have to look at, OK, first of all, if I'm going to overpay a little bit to get into these to get into this platform investment, you know, I, I've got to find a way to buy down my multiple. Right. Uh, a little bit by being able to develop. Uh, the second thing I think you know, think about if I'm one of those investors is how do I get to scale in a brand that's maybe smaller and doesn't have as many acquisition uh, you know, op- opportunities among the franchise e-space? And, and the question and the answer to that is to develop new stores. Uh, and then if I'm going to get into a new brand that might have three or 400 units and I operate in four key markets and I'm just going to like grab one of those markets and get a development agreement with a new brand, I've got to be really convinced that the, the development numbers in my existing brand and in my new brand really support the investment I'm making in those markets. So I think development becomes and continues to be a big part of what you see in 2021. Question here is, with all the restaurant closures, could development kind of be a new path? I mean, could it be you know, I live down here in the hurricane zone, right? In, in in Florida, in the Gulf Breeze area. And, you know, we dealt with Hurricane Sally in, in September. I think it was September 16th, 2021. And it hit unexpectedly and was really brutal. Uh, no one wants a hurricane. No one wants any, any anything anything like that to happen. But I make the analogy so that you can see that sometimes when a hurricane hits and, and things need to be cleaned up and fixed and closed and remodeled after a hurricane, what comes out of it is actually a really good environment. And a lot of people put money into their homes and, you know, redo their landscaping and, you know, and, and, and really get back on their feet in a meaningful way. And, and maybe that's what's ha- what happens in the franchise space after COVID as we hit the back half of 2021. Perhaps if, you know, perhaps we get into a place where there have been a lot of closures, there's been thinning of the wheat from the chaff, right? Uh, you know, we probably needed that in our industry that was really, as an entire global industry, was really not growing prior to 2020. And so maybe we we see seven or eight or nine percent less restaurants. Uh, maybe we see some corresponding increases in sales that are permanent, and maybe we see development start to happen again. Uh, and so that's that's something to keep to be mindful of. So I guess again, I would reiterate: chicken looks really good to me. Uh, maybe um, y- y- you know. Uh, maybe the most resilient brands with the, with the best development, new unit development uh, economics. Uh, I get a lot of calls on on brands like Wingstop, for example, or Papa John's, or you know, smaller kind of brands that don't own real estate and don't need as big of a footprint to succeed. So those types of brands, I think, are going to be really you know out there. Problem with some of those brands is they have a lot of smaller franchisees, and then one and then the newer brands, you don't have a lot of people who want to sell those units, right? There, if if the economics are really strong, they want to keep their business and grow it. But those are concepts that I think are going to continue to do really, really well. In 2021 too. So uh, another couple of questions here that that just kind of wrote down to answer. What are the longer term trends that may emerge post COVID? I don't know that I have a good answer to that one. I I just kind of penciled that out and thought I'd talk about it for a little bit. I think you're, you know, you're, you're, you're going to see, uh, I I like the contrarian view that you're going to see people go back into dining and restaurants again. I don't know how much it's going to return. It's, it's, it's an open question that no one can really answer. Do I see restaurants, fine dining restaurants being a hundred percent full immediately once COVID's over? I don't, I don't think so, but I I do think it's maybe going to come back faster 
faster than, than, than I thought before. I was eating dinner with a good college buddy of mine. He lives in Chicago. And he said, he, he said this to me in a way that I can understand it. He says, people, I think, he goes, he's a professional investor. He said, I think people are itching to go down to Mexico. You know, and I was like, what? What are you talking about, man? And he said, by, by saying people are itching to go back to Mexico, like people are ready to get out and spend and spend money and to like maybe go a little bit free with with things, maybe, you know, since they've been cooped up for so long. And and maybe that applies to fine dining. Um, but but I, but I do think I, I do think it'll come back a little bit more than maybe some are, are predicting. And so, uh, you know, and, and another one of my buddies who I mentioned earlier, who says that he feels like independence will really come back strong in 2021 and 2022. And I hope they do. And I think he could be right that we could see kind of a really a, a rebound of the casual dining, uh, dine-in restaurant chains. And then I, I think the people that had problems, the brands that had problems that were covered up by COVID that got like an artificial boost to their brands and their franchisees' health, you know, are probably are going to sink down to the, the problems that they had before. And, uh, you know, I, I think you can only hide a problem for so long before the problem reemerges unless there's really major systemic change. So as you drive down Main Street in your hometowns and you see several of the brands that look to be doing better now, but really weren't doing all that well prior to COVID, ask yourself if you think that they're going to stay, stay performing well, or maybe, maybe the trends there are going to change back to where and revert to where they were beforehand. One of an interesting uh, line of questioning that I've gotten recently was, do, do people do minority investments in franchises? And I just would just chat about that for a minute. For 2021, I think you may indeed see the trend a little bit of operators of good businesses, $10 million in EBITDA or more on the franchise side. They may be owned by the first generation founder, or they may be family office backed, or they may have an investor, a smaller investor in the business. But I think you may see people say this. They may say, hmm, 2021 looks to be great. I, I, I can't begin to replicate the returns that I'm making in this business and anything else that I'm doing. Uh, but yet I realize that taxes may be on the increase and our valuation is at an all-time high right now. So with that being said, like, could I mean, how do I take advantage of this? Now, if you were owning 100 shares of stock of IBM, right, you might sell 40 shares of them to dilute or liquidate part of your position and hold the remaining part of your position. That would be a way to reduce your risk, right, and lock in some profits now, but continue to own IBM stock. Up until now, especially if you're playing around in the you know five to fifteen million dollar EBITDA space on the franchisee side, you really don't have anything like that, right? I mean, you know, it hasn't been very common to see people like sell or invite investors into their business to to buy, acquire, or to invest a minority share, but not have control. So I've just been listening to to one particular friend of mine who thinks that's going to be a, a thing for 2021, and I've also kind of been uh, been been thinking about what the the investment market might be, and and I think it's I think it's there. I, I think there are investors who like minority positions, even in a somewhat. Uh, uncertain environment because of the strength of QS, QSR. I don't think all industries, especially industries that are down, you probably don't see minority investors around as much, right? They're going to want control and they're going to want meaningful board seats and they're going to want to dictate when the business is sold. Uh, but if it's a strong performing business, 
and you have a franchisee who may not want to sell but may want an investor to take maybe 30% of their equity out of their business to be able to put half of it, let's say, in their pocket and the other half of it to place towards new unit development, then I, you know, I think that model exists and I think investors are there. I, I think there's there's myriads of investors after talking with them over the next last few weeks. So that's a, that's something that we may see in greater in greater amounts. And when I'm talking about that, like we may go from like zero transactions to like 10 of those types of transactions in 2021. Who knows? You know, at the end of 2020, we were talking about taking a shareholder distribution, right? Uh, and, and if you're structured in the way that you could do that to, to take advantage of current capital gains tax rates, to do that and take a little bit out of your uh, equity out of your business that way by maybe borrowing more money and levering up at low interest rates and, you know, and paying today's capital gains tax before it increases. And, and I think several clients opted for that type of maneuver in 2020. Uh, you know, I, th- I think that was probably a, a good move because uh, obviously tax, taxes, um, capital gains taxes and all other taxes are not going Going down in 2021 and 2022, if if anything, they're going up. Uh, but but that that is another you know mechanism that I see for people who might not want a minority investor in their business is maybe somebody who continues to to look at this idea of, of borrowing money to do a shareholder distribution. If you know, talk to your CPA right to make sure that that you can take advantage of of the lower capital gains taxes now. One big question is going to be clearly, what do you think about the uh, 2021 from a from a tax increase perspective? What's the timing on it, and do you feel like it'll be made retroactive to January 1st of 2021, which does not seem to be a common view, but nonetheless, it's a possibility. And I think that is just my wrap for today. I I, I think um, you know it's a wait and see outlook for 2021, but I, I am hopeful that we're going to see a a decent size recovery and then that recovery is going to really buoy us as a as a country and maybe along with it we'll see our beloved franchise industry continue to thrive and flourish like it's been doing for the last seven or eight months and to everyone who's listening man keep the faith know we're going to get through this covid crisis soon by the time you listen to this you you know maybe we we, you've already gotten the vaccine who knows but but i think there's some some big optimism and uh, a lot of hard work in front of us so take care and we'll talk to you soon Thanks so much for entering the Boiler Room today. You can find our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, and Spotify. If you like these podcasts, please listen, rate, and review. I also encourage you to visit our website at www.unbridledcapital.com for the best franchise M&A and financial resources in the industry. Our website includes webinars, podcasts, videos, white papers, and a list of our past M&A transactions. Please note that neither Rick Ormsby nor Unbridled Capital Advisors, LLC, give legal, financial, or tax advice. These podcasts represent opinions that have been prepared for informational purposes only. We expressly disclaim any and all liabilities that may be based on such information, errors therein, or omissions therefrom.